If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. For many years now, relations between India, Pakistan and Bangladesh have been characterised by division. But in centuries past, people of the subcontinent saw themselves as belonging to Hindustan, a place that was home to all religions. In his book, The Loss of Hindustan, The Invention of India, the historian Manan Ahmed Asif of Columbia University explores the concept of Hindustan and how it was replaced during the colonial era. His book has recently been shortlisted for the Kundal History Prize, of which History Extra is a media partner. And in today's interview, he was joined in conversation by BBC History Magazine editor Rob Attar. Your book's entitled The Loss of Hindustan, The Invention of India. And before we go any further, could you please explain what we mean by both of these terms and what the difference between them is? Sure. Um, So, you know, one easy way of thinking about these two terms is that um, prior to um, European colonial interests in the subcontinent, the political, various political powers that were in the subcontinent referred to it as Hindustan. And so you had the Mughals who were who called themselves the Shahanshah Hindustan or the emperor or king of kings of Hindustan, etc. And even the earlier 18th century maps or travelogues or prior to 18th century, uh, you would see Hindustan, I-N-D-O-O-S, or uh, various other spellings of Hindustan on colonial British, um, Dutch, French, German uh, maps, travelogues, etc., And then um, there is a shift that happens in the beginning of the 19th century where we go from Hindustan to something called British India under the East India Company uh, rule. And obviously from there, there is an invention, as I I argue in my book, of something called India, which is uh, kind of formalized with 1947 when you have the establishment of uh, Pakistan and India as divided countries in the subcontinent. So is the term India not really then in common use prior to British colonialism? Well, it's, it's, you know, it's not a, all of the languages in which India would appear, um, even if we go back to Greek uh, or, um, you know, um, were not subcontinental languages. So no one in India, what we would say India, would refer to India as such. It's a term with which the colonial and European um, uh, merchants and, you know, traders and uh, armies uh, saw the subcontinent. Uh, but of course, then it, during colonial rule, it's taken up uh, as well by by the uh, anti-colonial forces, and it obviously becomes part of the nomenclature of the independent uh, countries. So what are the main historical sources that we use to understand I guess, what you'd call the Hindustani period before the colonial era? 
I think what would be useful is to just say a little bit, I think, why it's important to say something about Hindustan rather than just India, right? You know, what difference does it make if the word is in English or, or anything else? And, you know, we're... Um, I think one of the things that is important for us to understand is, for example, the, the continent we call America um, did not have that name before European settlement uh, called it as such. Um, its prior names and its prior indigenous histories are lost in that sense, right? We refer to Latin America or South America or North America, but America is not a, a kind of nomenclature with which the inhabitants who were uh, so-called discovered or wiped away by Columbus would have called the place that they lived in. And so, in a sense, by asking, a, you know, asking ourselves what was the names, what were the ideas, what were the concepts that get displaced by colonial intervention. We are also um, asking ourselves the, the utility and the importance of the kind of worlds before colonial rule. Um, so uh, Australia or America it may not exist in the same kind of lexical format as the Europeans want, you know, created them in. Um, but the peoples uh, obviously still remain, whether it's in Australia or, or the native peoples in, in the Americas. Um, and of course, the inhabitants of the subcontinent, uh, in the sense that it's not a settler colony like Australia or, or, or America, um, continue to kind of uh, exist in that same, same framework, right? Um, so I think the, the reason it's important for us to kind of think about Hindustan is that it's a, it's, a, it's a way of seeing the world that gets effaced by colonial rule over, over you know, 200 years, let's say. Um, so when we kind of think about this concept through maps, through travelogues, through uh, political treatises, and of course, for the purpose of my book, through histories, right, uh, sort of specific histories written off this space called Hindustan. What we're, we're also doing is kind of in a decolonial move, we're kind of reinvigorating concept worlds that existed prior to colonialism. Um, and I think that's a, a, a very important part of how we see the past, um, in, in the, the, the fact that colonial ideas of space or colonial ideas of people cannot remain unchallenged or assumed or normative in our everyday contemporary politics, if that makes sense. So do you think the the shift from Hindustan to India, was that a deliberate policy on the part of British colonialism or was that more of an accidental change? Yeah, no, so thank you. That's a great question. I mean, you know, the funny thing is that British, particularly British colonial uh uh, endeavor from its almost its very beginning uh, made a great deal of effort to characterize itself as accidental. Um, and you can, you know, we can go back to Burke's kind of writings against Hastings. Um, you know, so so the, the, a, a feature, uh, let let me just say, of British colonialism is is precisely its so-called accidental nature. You know, you stumble into empire, you stumble into colony, you stumble into a particular relationship of, of civilization or of missionary con- conversion. Um, and and there, there, you know, historians of, of 
of you know uh, early 20th century had lots of fodder for this. You know, they're bumbling fools who are administrator. They're people who are, you know, causing famines and just like not paying attention. And everyone can say, yeah, yeah, these people. How can they? How can they put together a policy so? so kind of complicated that a worldview can be effaced and another worldview be installed. It must be an accident. Um, I happen to, you know, <laughs> very ferociously disagree with that. I think colonialism is not and has never been an accident. I mean, we can see, we can see a very deliberate usage of how to talk about knowledge, how to talk about um, ideas that are implemented um, at the highest level um, that is, that will be the edit, you know, the East India Company Board of Governors. That will be the king, uh, and its courtiers and policymakers and the high parliament, um, and the elite, um, sort of the money part of it, the kind of elite um, uh, merchant guilds, etc. Um, the Africa uh, Trading Company. All of these efforts. Um, there is a very concentrated part to define, to define what they're doing and define where they're doing it and how they're doing it. And, and what we see with Hindustan is precisely that there's a, there's a lexical kind of diminishing of that category. So in the 17th century, uh, you see, you know, a lot of uh, kind of idea that Hindustan may actually be the subcontinent. But, but precisely at the end of the 17th, early 18th century, there is a move to say, no, 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 no. Uh, what we're talking about is the Mughal rule. And if the Mughals are contained with towards North India, then Hindustan is really North India. And by the mid-18th century, well, the Mughals are really in Delhi. So Hindustan is really just Delhi. Uh, that is, you know, even, even a smaller portion. Um, and, and after 1857, you know, the Empress uh, Queen Victoria, when she becomes the Empress of India, um, there is no mention of Hindustan. Hindustan doesn't exist, even though the person that she deposed, Bahadur Shah uh, 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 Zafar, uh, uh, who, who was the last so-called last Mughal emperor, he called himself, or people who followed him called him Shahanshah Hindustan, right? The king of kings of Hindustan. So you can even look at 1857 as a moment when the deposed ruler is is the emperor of Hindustan, and the the colonial ruler is the empress of India, right? And and those two terms are coterminous, as in they exist in the same time and space at the same time. But after 1857, you you just really you just British India. That British India is the thing that exists until 1947. And what does the term Hindustan, or what did the term say to dif- the different religions of India? Because you know, it starts with the word Hindu, but also it was a term that was used by the, the Mughals. So does it does it work across religious divides? You know, what I try to do in my book is I trace not only some of the kind of ways in which Hindustan is a political idea and a concept, concept for space, but obviously a, a term of belonging. You know, people using it to say, we are Hindustani, uh, this is Hindustani food, or this is Hindustani culture, or this is Hindustani music, etc. Um, and Hindustan, in its essence, basically means inhabitant of the land of Hind. And Hind is the subcontinent. It's, it's, the, it's you know, Kabul to the Bay of Bengal, the Himalayas to Lanka. Right, so that triangle, and the inhabitants of this land call themselves Hindustani, and this land is Hindustan. And now, 
It actually it doesn't happen until much later. Uh, in fact, I, I mentioned in my book that it's it's actually Savarkar, Veer Savarkar, who in the very beginning, the first decade of the 20th century, is able to make an argument that the Hindu in Hindustan means the practitioner or follower of a religion. Uh, and so the Hindustan for Savarkar is a believer of Hinduism and their land, um, as opposed to uh, a Muslim who is cannot be an inhabitant of Hindustan, according to Savarkar, um, or a Christian, uh, etc. So um, that's a 20th century idea um, where the word Hindu and Hindustan and then Hindi, the language, uh, are put together in a kind of a formula for a, a new type of politics that emerges in the 20th century. Uh, but prior to that, um, you know, you, you see, uh, I trace it uh, as far back as the 10th century. Uh, you have an idea that's really tied to two things, space, so where are you in Hindustan? Sometimes you cross the, um, you know, the Indus and you leave Hindustan. Sometimes you cross the Amudarya and you leave Hindustan. Um, sometimes you're in the Southeast Asian uh, kind of uh, uh, Indian Ocean world and you're still in Hindustan. Um, Nepal is still in Hindustan. Uh, Sri Lanka, contemporary Ceylon, etc. are still in Hindustan. So that geography moves around a little bit over, over the centuries. Um, but it's, a, it's an idea that, that is able to inhabit whoever happens to be in it, regardless of their, um, their religion. Um, but they do have uh, things in common. They have a, a, a sense of, I want to say, pride in its superiority, <laughs> right? Hindustan has the best, most delicious food, has the most beautiful animals, uh, has, you know, the peacock. Who else has a peacock? No one has a peacock. We have a peacock. Um, and, and a language, a type of, a type of, type of kind of uh, linguistic patois that takes from Sanskrit and Persian and, and, and other languages and creates a type of, uh, you know, a, a, a glossary and a, a grammar that can be widely understood and spoken about. So, so in, that, in that way, Hindustan is, is both a kind of an ecumenical idea, right? One that doesn't require a type of religion. Uh, but also a deeply uh, affective idea. You 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 share it. You belong in it. You tell of its kind of importance to your. In my case, as I said, I'm reading history, so you tell its importance to the readers of your text. Perhaps the key figure in your book is a man named Farishta. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about his background and how he came to write his monumental history. Thank you. Yeah. So, you know, um, a struggle that I faced uh, writing about an idea that no longer exists in its, in its, um, in its kind of um, fullest uh, capacity, and people don't recognize that idea to have ever existed in a way because of the politics of contemporary world. Um, so one of the struggles I had was identifying a space from which I can actually write this history, right? So where do you find a, a, a kind of a perspective that allows you to anchor, you know, uh, uh, a work such as mine that 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 goes across uh, so many um, centuries. And so the figure that I ended up 
foregrounding and thinking through is this uh, gentleman named Farishta, who was a medical doctor, um, uh, battle battle surgeon, battlefield surgeon in a way. He was a diplomat. He um, was also someone who kind of was part of various political, uh, various uh, kind of palace um, uh, staffs in the Deccan, contemporary Deccan. So that would be, you know, Western uh, India uh, in the middle, um, you know, where contemporary cities of Hyderabad, uh, et cetera, are Carnatic. And, and there, there were a number of polities, smaller polities, not, not grand, grand kind of empire like the Mughal. There are smaller polities in, in, in and um, one of those polities that um, uh, Farishta ends up being uh, employed by uh, was governed by a man named Ibrahim Adil Shah II. And this was in Bijapur in the Deccan. And, and Ibrahim Adil Shah II is an interesting character, you know, late, um, late 16th, early 17th century. He's kind of a, a, a polymath in the sense he's a very talented musician. He's a composer as well of uh, not only just plays music, but also composes musical theory. He translates from various languages into various languages and uh, employs a, a sort of a really kind of a creme de la creme of intellectuals, artists in his court, builds a brand new city that, that is kind of a, a city of, of um, in, you know, intellect and creativity, Gulbarga. Um, um, and, and so, so one of the things that Ibrahim Adil Shah II basically says to Farishta, he says, you know, what I want is a, is a type of history that captures the, the beauty and the resonance of Hindustan. I want, I want like a volume, you know, the, the emphasis on one volume. Uh, and obviously we don't understand volume in the same way that that is being talked about there. Uh, but it's a, it's a single volume, a, a mustanid, uh, authentic history of Hindustan. So not a history of my polity, not the kings and my descendants alone, not the history of the Mughals who are far away a little bit and we don't know whether we like them fully or not. Um, but a history of the space, Hindustan. Now, there is some competition because other polities, so the Mughals, Akbar, for example, you know, we know, is a great Mughal king. And so he has very, very, very prominent historians and intellectuals who are also producing histories of Akbar, of the Mughal Empire, um, or of the universal time. Uh, but Farishta and Ibrahim Adil Shah think that there is some space here. What, they, what Farishta says in his preface, he says, look, these other histories may be about a person or they may be about a polity, but they're not about this land the space that we're all in it together. So he writes such a history. He takes it on as a task that I want to write a history that hasn't been written before. And this is the history of Hindustan. So it's not a history of a particular, particular part of the subcontinent. It's not a history of a particular line genealogy of kings or of a particular faith or religion. It's a history of a space. And then that space is subdivided into constitutive spaces. And in those constitutive spaces, there's some kings and there's some merchants and some cities and some robbers and some arts. And, you know, like you can tell a kind of a social history uh, on of these different spaces and their relationship to a type of global understanding and universal history that he's also trying to do. Um, so this is a commission that Farishta gets. Um, we don't know. Um, his, his dates are kind of like 1570 to somewhere around 1620-ish. 
maybe we don't really know when he dies. We only have two surviving manuscripts of his. One is the Tariq Farishta, the history that he writes that I uh, work on. And the other is a kind of a medical field manual of various, uh, you know, things he witnesses and cures and, um, you know, um, um, techniques of surgery that he performs. Um, and this history then, the history of Hindustan, becomes, I think, for me, a perspective from which I can tell this broader story. Let's just say for Frishta, he's very clear about what Hindustan is and what it, what where it goes and what makes it so special. And I wanted that clarity to be, you know, kind of like in the mid, in the center of my book, from which I can then trace its permutations and, of course, its decline at, at the end. And interestingly, uh, Farishta's work was quite influential among European thinkers and writers, although is it is it fair to say that they either misused or misappropriated or misunderstood his work in the end? Yeah, I th- so I think, you know, I think first of all, any work of history that, you know, we survives, including his works of history that survived to Farishta's time, have to go through a, a kind of a, a, a process of interpretation, right? And And that's understood. Uh, Farishta is reading histories written in the 13th century, written for a very different politics, written for a very different worldview, that Farishta in the 17th century is then saying, oh, okay, I kind of see what those people were doing when they were writing it, and but this is kind of what I see, uh, what I'm doing. So when we fast forward to the kind of middle of the 18th century, uh, the East India Company, and especially in Bengal, the kind of staff officers of Warren Hastings, who's the governor general of, of Bengal at that time, are really keen on making a, a type of work available in English that can stand up as a representative picture of the world as that moment. Now, for whom? Well, for London, for King George. Um, as you remember, uh, or you, you know, may recall that, you know, uh, basically starting in the 1750s, 60s onwards till 1776, you have the British attention is really on the American colonies. And in 1776, those colonies go away, right? You have the American independence. So while there's stuff, there's a settler colonial project that's ongoing there, there is another major colonial project that's ongoing in the Indians in the subcontinent. Now, should we make that a settler colonial project? Should we make it a, a, you know, a simple extractive project? Like what type of colony is this? Should we be sending people to settle it? Should we be converting these people in Bengal? What are we doing here as opposed to what are we doing in Boston or in, uh, in Virginia? So for People who were engaged with Warren Hastings, and these are people like Alexander Dow, William Jones, a set of officers that work with uh, Warren Hastings, they want to create a narrative about this colony that can be understood in London, that can then dictate the policy that is going to transpire. So one thing that Alexander Dow, who is in the Bengal infantry, he's again a military officer, but he starts to create translations of different things uh, for consumption. He's, he's Scottish, um, he's from Scotland, uh, and he's very close for friends with David Hume. And 
Um, he's 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 keen to kind of bring some of the lighter stuff, quote unquote, lighter stuff. So these are you know his Inayatullah's translation of like um, we can understand them as as um, as you know um, tales from the harem slash street. So he he translates some of that stuff. Um, but what he's really keen on is a kind of a history of Hindustan. So he writes in his preface that, well, you know, he was looking to learn Persian and he asked people what the best history is of Hindustan. And in his version, he asks the emperor <laughs> uh, himself. And the emperor gives him the first volume of Farishta, which he then renders into English as the history of Hindustan uh, that's published in 1768. And then in 1772, he publishes his second volume, which is... Uh, in two volumes. Um, uh, and so these, these, this history of Hindustan of Farishta enters basically at, in, in the late um, uh, 18th century and is immediately taken up, not only by, by, by kind of the court in London, but through Hume, it, it goes uh, to Voltaire, who is at that exact moment creating his kind of universe, his idea of universal history. It goes to Kant, who is also producing another vision of a universal uh, history. And it's rendered in, uh, in you know, various European languages. It's, a, it's what we can call like a viral sensation. It's like what Dao is actually doing is he's taking a very, very slim portion of Farishta and basically up- appending to it the his contemporary period because Farishta has been long <laughs> dead and gone, right? He has nothing to say about the 18th century of Dao. Uh, but Dao is a Bengal, is in the Bengal infantry. He needs to make an argument like what we need here is basic direct taxation. We need to evacuate claims of land and we need to make these peasants into tax paying individuals who can, from whose harvest the company can take direct remittance as, as opposed to. The previous uh, dispensation, which was worked out by the by uh, by the company with the Mughal uh, emperor, so that's what Dao is interested in. That's what that's what's happening now. How how would a history written 150 years ago help with that? Well, in rendering it into English, he appends what what they, he calls dissertations to the main text that he's rendering from Persian into English. These dissertations are actually on. Exactly, you know, despotism, Muslim despotism, so that, you know, the people get an idea that these Muslim rulers are cruel and barbaric and, you know, do gender violence and do religious violence upon their polity. And secondly, that the the dissertation that argues for a a different set of rules for the Hindu polity, the, the Hindu population, and, and, and finally, the question of land. Um, how, how do we tax the land? How do we control the land in power? So what is the property of question of property for Bengal? So the renditions of Farishta into English carry these dissertations with them. And then they travel. And, and these dissertations, either on the idea of oriental despotism, would become incredibly important all the way down to Marx, and, and furthermore, the idea of universal history would become incredibly important. 
for obviously people like Kant, but then Kant's student Herder, and then later on Hegel, who would constitute his idea of universal history, uh, using basically the, the text that Tao has rendered into Farista. And, and so that a level of kind of um, the, the spread of this rendition then creates a, a significant, um, let's just call it market space for now, for European thought to center itself on history of the subcontinent. So very shortly thereafter, uh, you know, J- James Mill, who is a, a lifelong employee of the East India Company, ends up writing the most important, one of the most important texts, which is the history of British India. Um, and that history of British India relies heavily on translations or renditions done off Farishta into European languages. Um, Mill's son, J.S. Mill, of course, also an employee of the East India Company, um, would then go on to create his theory of liberalism on precisely this, this, this same uh, raw material, as it were. So Farishta has a, a, a radically different life in, in European thought um, but you can't find it because um, he's not cited ever in the text. He's always only in the sub, in, on the footnotes. See Dao, not even see Farishta, see Dao, or see Briggs, a later translation, uh, or see Jonathan Scott, a later translation. So, you know, I, I ended up kind of going through some of these texts, uh, these lectures and these histories, and just tracing these particular renditions to see the kind of impact that Frishta had on uh, European conception of what I would call the philosophy of history, the universal idea of how to write history, but also basic things that we have a lot of understanding of, um, but we haven't connected the dots, like Oriental despotism, um, the idea of a, a landed elite that is controlling, um, you know, in a feudal manner, controlling the subcontinent. All of these kind of things come from Dao's um, dissertations appended to his renditions of Farishta. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. It's not like Farishta is not available to them. They, they, they're reading Farishta. But the paradigm in which they're writing is a paradigm of complete colonial domination. So they will write a history of Queen Victoria with with as much kind of sense of ownership on that history as they would write a history of Hindustan. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And how different was the subsequent European conceptions of Indian history from the, I guess you say, the Hindustan ideal? So for Dao, as I mentioned already, for him, uh, there is a 
kind of a primordial conflict that is happening in the oriental despot ruler, which is Muslim and has to be deposed, and a, and a society of Hindus that are kind of frozen in time. They are, they are idolatrous. They do kind of have multiple gods, and we don't want to kind of let them go on in that thing. So we have to convert them at some point, or at least get them to understand monotheism. Um, and they are suppressed. They are oppressed. They can't think. They are stuck in 800 years of slavery. Um, and so for Dow, for um, the William Jones, who basically makes his name as a philologist and a translator of uh, bits from Mahabharat, like Shakuntala, etc., and, and creating the Gentu, the code, the first kind of legal code that the British Empire um, institutes in Bengal. Uh, for, for all of this kind of um, set of episteme that I call the colonial episteme in the late 18th century, um, the, the pivot, the kind of basic fulcrum of everything is that we're dealing with two different civilization or two different peoples. On the one hand, we have to understand the Muslims because they are horrible. You know, they're despotic. They're barbaric. We have been fighting them since the Crusades. So that's part one. Part two are these populations, these much bigger number of people who are uh, naked. Um, you know, they are stuck in time. They have really weird belief systems. Uh, and we need to educate them, civilize them, free them up. Um, and those two basic things are nowhere to be found in Farishta. So Farishta does not see the world as divided into two halves, nor do all of the histories that Farishta is reading. Um, you know, there's no such division. There are other divisions. Obviously, there are hierarchies and divisions of other sort. Um, you know, people who are elite because of their learning or people who are elite because they... Uh, live in a particular city that is a you know has you know some kind of claim to fame or to arts or to food etc cetera, etc cetera. but there's no dichotomy of the rule to the ruled that is there in the colonial period and there's no certainly no dichotomy between some something called the hindu again not a stable category until the colonial rule or something called the Muslim. Again, not a stable category until the colonial rule, right? So for Farishtas and his, you know, one is not a Muslim. Now one has Shi beliefs or Sunni beliefs or Sufi beliefs or, um, you know, one has, you know, some other ways, ways of being in the world. Um, but one isn't stable and calcified category that one becomes under the colonial writings, in the colonial writings. And so that's the sub, sort of the substantive difference uh, is, is how we see the world in, in, from the colonial period uh, versus the Hindustan history period. Um, and that has consequences, obviously, on, on the type of moral claims or ethical claims that are made in a history that I focus on, right? So for the colonial histories, for, for Mill, for example, there is a very clear urgency to bring liberal thought to, to the subcontinent, to free the masses, um, not obviously to keep them colonized, but to you know, rid them of their superstitions, etc. Again, if we go back to how 
Burke kind of writes about uh, writes about India in his in his kind of uh, debates against Hastings, you see very clear picture of, you know, why that idea of a despotic rule is so important for liberal thought for uh, English liberal thought at the moment. It takes on another sense after 1857 because now British soldiers and British civilians have been slaughtered and in the in the uprising in the uprising of 1857 so now you have to oppress as in now the idea of the violence that was undergoing the whole time uh, becomes also civilizational violence so i'm not trying to say that the colonial idea of, of the subcontinent also remains calcified it it shifts as time goes on um, but it's very different from anything that Farishta may write about or anything that Farishta is reading that is all of the work before him may conceive of in the world. Then for uh, what you might call indigenous historians in the subcontinent, did they take on these colonial ideas of the history of the area or did they try and fight back against them? Yeah, again, that's a great question. In a, in a way, we have to kind of remind ourselves that we're talking about a time scale that, that is not of a lifetime, right? So, so if these ideas are kind of being put forth in 1780s or 1770s, um, by the time we get to 1880s, um, when kind of disciplinary history is being um, written about, journal, you know, journals, et cetera, are, are thinking about, that's 100 years already by 1880s of it a type of writing a type of research a type of uh, you know output so by the time we get to 1880s 1890s and I look at a set of historians who are writing in Delhi uh, you know who are writing on Hindustan who are writing histories of Hindustan you know they uh, it's not like Farishta is not available to them they they they're reading Farishta but the paradigm in which they're writing is a paradigm of complete colonial domination. So they will write a history of Queen Victoria with, with as much kind of sense of ownership on that history as they would write a history of Hindustan. And the claim is that, well, we have to produce the social scientific idea of research, right? We have to have footnotes, we have to have archives. So that the apparatus of history writing and the kind of intellectual difference from the colonial project are, are, are working at the same time, but in pulling in the narrative in different directions. Um, and, and this is very sort of, I think, resonant with people who, who may be familiar with the way in which black thought develops at the turn of the 19th century with respect to the, the American, in the American context. So if we look at uh, you know, uh, eminent um, uh, intellectuals like W.E.B. Du Bois, who, are, who is kind of trying to figure out how do you tell the story of black life, black history, black living, when the central paradigm is objectified them, dehumanized them, put them in a, in a, in a kind of an enclosed structure from which they cannot be discursively removed, as well as politically emancipated. So this is a struggle for various intellectuals of the late 19th century. Some of them basically write what we could call the same narrative that a intellectual, a colonial intellectual 
like Vincent Smith is writing in the early part of the 20th century. So there's not much difference in terms of the perspective that is being. So they're reformist. Islam must be reformed. Um, British liberal thought is a good deal, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and there are others who, who, who are saying, yes, but we need emancipation. We need our own claim to our own land on our own history. That second part is where Hindustan remains to be a type of spirit that lives, right? So we have something like the, you know, in, in, in the United States, we have something like the kind of Hindustan society of students who are, who are coming, who came to the United States in the early part of the 20th century, 1910, 1920, who have a free Hindustan publication. And then um, during, this, during the interwar period in the Second World War, there is a free Hindustan army which is, again, an anti-colonial effort uh, by Shubhash Chandra Bosch to, to fight against um, the, um, the British. Uh, so the word Hindustan, still in the earlier part of the 20th century, remains a potent kind of symbol for call for emancipation. Uh, and Jay Hindustan, uh, the kind of claim, long live Hindustan, um, is, a, is a political rallying point. Now, again, that's not a stable, uh, you know, when we go back now 70 years after that, it's not like the, the idea of Hindustan is the same as I mentioned earlier. Like Jai Hind now means basically the, the nation state of India um, does not include Pakistan or Nepal or anything else. It's, it's India alone. Um, and so the the... The struggle for a historian, especially in the late 19th, early 20th century, is that they're not simply struggling against actual colonial political rule, but they're also struggling against a, a social science, a discipline that is forcing them to take on as a given certain things. The superiority of British colonial rule, the idea that liberal thought must have a specific teleology in which the native, the colonized, has to civilizationally grow. As you know, other historians have said, um, uh, the colonized is in a kind of a waiting room, right? They're waiting to develop enough that they can become full liberal subjects and hence have some autonomy. So the, the, I, the, the historians are really struggling, um, but... Again, now we are 200 years after this initial move in the 1770s, um, by 1970s or 1980s. I mean, so the idea is, is very much that, the, that colonial rule in India has to be understood not only in the kind of depth, but also in its temporal, uh, in its temporal width. Um, you know, it's a very, very long, very long political engagement. And do you think the colonial framing of the subcontinent's history has some influence on what later happens with the division between India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and the way mm -hmm. the re different religious groups have reacted, responded to each other in those subsequent decades. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. So, you know, for example, Jinnah would articulate a civilizational difference when he would say that we need a separate homeland from Muslims. What he would say is like, Muslims have been a civilization different than Hindus for 1,400 years. Now, that's kind of factually incorrect in the sense that 
you know, the, his own personal life, but certainly the, the corpus of material that I touch upon um, shows no such distinction, has no such space for civilizational difference. Uh, but that's a political claim that takes on what the British were enforcing and, and naturalizes it. So by the time of the 1940 declaration, yes, uh, the claim that there is nothing that is common between two communities, even if they live next door to each other, um, has a commonsensical value. Um, it's, of course, a historical claim, right? So because Jinnah or, uh, doesn't really say, well, right now, I don't have anything in common with a Hindu or a Muslim has nothing in common with a Hindu. It's not a claim of the present, right? He's not saying once we were, but now we're not. He's actually saying we never were. And, and so that's important, right? It's important that that's actually a claim on history. And that claim on history is dependent upon colonial historiography. It's colonial historiography that has been putting forth this idea for, you know, a hundred some years, 120 years uh, by, by, by his time, uh, that that's the case. And here's some evidence and here's some, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then Savarkar, who I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, at the early part of the 20th century, makes exactly the same claim, right? That there's Hindus are the only true inhabitants. And anyone who's a Muslim in this subcontinent is not a person, even if they're born and have been born, their four parents and generations and generations have been in this subcontinent. They will never be a Hindustani. Why not? Well, because when they pray, when they, when they pray, they turn their faces to Mecca, and Mecca is outside of Hindustan. And when a Hindu prays, they face or they visit a temple or an ashram that's inside Hindustan. So for Savarkar, birth no longer dictates any kind of idea of Hindustani-ness. Um, it's really fealty. It's fealty to a particular faith, and that faith's relationship to a particular land. Um, and again, that's nothing like what Farishta would imagine. For Farishta and everyone else, uh, birth did donate certain rights to be called a Hindustani. If you were born in Hindustan, you were a Hindustani. Um, so I think what happens is that the nation states of India and Pakistan, as they grow and um, Pakistan, of course, goes through a series of military dictatorships, um, but as they grow, the logic of division, the logic of separation, um, continues to grow alongside their political history. So if you look at the contemporary India, where, you know, Citizenship uh, Act has been introduced in order to, to prove that one is a citizen um, by displaying birth, birth certificates, etc., it's a, it's a piece of legislation that basically targets the Muslim community, whether it's in the Northeast or other parts of the, uh, of the subcontinent. Um, and obviously you see in the political discourse in India that if someone is um, speaking against the ruling party, they are called anti-national, they're called Pakistanis, they're told to leave and go to Pakistan. So even though India has a you know 10% and more population of Muslim, they are imagined as outside of uh, the idea of Hindustan, which Hindustan is now a land of Hindus alone. 
Um, and for Pakistan, it's very similar that, you know, Pakistani politicians have, have imagined themselves not having no kind of genealogical roots in this space, but only to the idea of Islam, which ties them to contemporary Saudi Arabia or contemporary Middle East um, and has a completely different articulation to their understanding of their own history. So, um, you know, what we see then is that the colonial paradigm of difference not only becomes naturalized as part of anti-colonial struggle at the, in the 1930s and 40s, but post-40s, uh, over the last 70 years, um, it has become from a place of naturalization to basically a pointed edge with which you can pry things apart. You can break things open because now you have a kind of a, 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 a type of a, you know, a spear or an axe that can break apart something else, right? So you have claims that if something is in Sanskrit, then it's Hindu or Hindustani and Indian, right? So, so, those, so Basmati rice, the word Basmati is Sanskrit. And hence, India can, should patent Basmati rice. Um, even if Sanskrit is the, the, the kind of flourished in, in main centers of learning were Peshawar and Lahore, even if places where rice was cultivated is, is the Indus Valley, it's Mohenjo-daro, etc., so it's like you're taking that sharp end and you're, you're prying apart not only living communities now, but you're really prying apart really, really deep history. Uh, 5,000 years old ago, we can still tear that apart. Um, and so that, that is, in my view, very much dependent on the type of work that Dao, etc. did in the, in the middle of the 18th century. And then just finally, what lessons do you think the book you've written and the concept of Hindustan can have for us today? I think um, part of the reason I, I was really invested in, in telling the story was that I, I think um, I was interested in what the ethics of history writing is. I'm a historian. I, 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 I want to think about what I do and why I do what I do. And the world that I live in um, has certain challenges that I feel helpless against, right? So I can see that by 2030, um, there's going to be over 100 million people who will be forced to migrate because of lack of water in um, the subcontinent. I can see that the falling of the water table and the thinning of the ice in the Himalayas um, means that the rivers are going to stop functioning, uh, stop flowing. So by 2050, we're looking at a world where the cities are submerged because of rising sea level, water table has fallen. Um, much of arable land now is no longer um, able to uh, bear any harvest. So, you know, we're in 2021. I may not be alive in 2030 or 2050, but the world that is going to be there in the subcontinent is, is a world in which Nation state cannot be of any help, right? Not, no help. Like, what are you going to do with the polity? Uh, nation state can defend a border or enact a border, but nation state can't, you know, find water. <laughs> it can't act in a unilateral way anymore. 
And we saw this remarkably with COVID, uh, with this global pandemic, where the story of border and bordering has become a story of incredible suffering that could have been avoided um, and should have been avoided. Uh, whether it's because of, um, you know, the availability of vaccines between the developing, uh, the places where the vaccines were developed and the markets, or it's whether between uh, cooperation that could have happened across the various countries in the subcontinent. So what I basically am trying to do is to say, look, the world that we faced is in such a dire picture that holding on to stories told by of civilizational difference or, or political differences that are that are invented literally out of thin air by you know random colonial dudes um, is nonsensical uh, we need a new way of imagining the future now one way to imagine a different future is actually to see what other imaginations were possible what other ways could we think of the world prior to how nation states made us into thinking about the nation is a very young concept i mean i'm a medieval historian nation state is really really just like a flash in the pan right compared to other forms of such as a city the city is a is a very very stable political form that we can trace thousands of years back and we can see it has an ecosystem it has a way of being a social network um and and so i think the one of the primary concerns i have in in thinking about hindustan is to is to say to myself perhaps if no one else is reading um there are other ways of thinking out there there are other conceptions available to us so it's not to return to hindustan it's to actually say no 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 we can we can build a different way of uh, belonging um we can build a different way of facing our challenges um as a as a political uh gesture and so i think what i saw in my research was that not only farishta who is writing as the european encounter is 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 kind of strengthening and he says very clearly like this is doom these europeans who are coming to pretending to be traitors and pretending to be against each other they're not they're not traitors and they certainly are not against each other they pretend in our courts that the german merchant is against the english merchant who's against the french merchant but farishta is not fooled and he's like no 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 these people are not against each other they're here in a unified agenda so he is he is writing his past confronting his present in the early part of the 17th century the historians that i studied who are writing in the late 19th early 20th century are also facing that same struggle they are writing under colonial rule and saying if we don't understand our past outside of this dichotomy then and they literally predict this in 191920s and 30s the subcontinent will be divided so again there's the historians who are looking forward are always kind of saying look we can see disaster is coming we just got to we just got to work towards and i i i find myself i guess in that kind of space where i'm like i don't want a nuclear war over water i don't want people in subcontinent to die because we can't figure out you know what simple belonging and co-working looks like like that sounds too crazy to me as a as a 
as a general person. You know, I understand that 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 if anything, the world is constricting itself and and choking off the supply of oxygen to all of all thinking minds. Um, but I guess the task of the historian is to still remind us that different worlds are possible. That was Manan Ahmed Asif. The Loss of Hindustan, The Invention of India is out now published by Harvard University Press. We'll be broadcasting more interviews with historians on the Kundal History Prize shortlist over the coming weeks, so please do listen out for those. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Be sure to listen in again tomorrow when James Holland will be sharing the story of a British tank regiment in the Second World War. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.